So, is it a rule book or is it a narrative? Is our Bible a collection of books that fit on a nice library shelf that um, they all agree with each other, although they were written 1600 years plus or minus from beginning to end. And uh, there's assuming an end in that question because we've always assumed the end, that the scriptures stopped and then they were collected. And then once they were collected, that was in. That, that's the end of the process, no changes. And these, these, these books that, that were gathered then, are they one narrative, an unfolding of, uh, of God and mankind and our relationship and our wrestling and our searching to understand who God is and what our place is in the universe? In other words, a narrative. <clears throat> or are they just a book of laws? Are they all Leviticus and they're all Deuteronomy? Uh, including the New Testament. And, and so everything that Jesus said, but especially anything that Paul said or in the epistles, those must be searched for eternal laws that must be in all places, all times, all cultures, all languages. So which is it? Well, this is very important because much of Protestantism is based upon the idea that the Bible is exactly that. It's a book of laws. Therefore, we must search the laws. We must find which laws should be applied and which laws should not, and then build our church around them. And then, of course, what happens is we get many, many different churches because people can't agree upon which law. For, for example, um, churches that say the Bible is a, is a narrative, but it's mainly law for us, that it was um, word by word inspired by God and it's full of these commands. There are some of them that require that you take the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, every first day of the week, because we have an example of that. They ignore the other examples that say it was taken every time people gathered, daily, from house to house. They ignore those. That doesn't need to be enforced, but the Sunday one does. Or how about this? Uh, the washing of feet that was just done, that, that was institu instituted the same meal that the Lord's Supper was. But no, we don't do that. Some churches do, uh, mainly in Appalachia and the American South, but also there are some groups in Europe that still practice this, and some do on a special occasion. But I mean, as an act of worship, regular time during the year, foot washing. They say, no, this is a command given same time as a communion. We argue about laws. But we should have asked a question. Who told us this was a book of laws? And who defines what the Bible really is? When I started really reading the Bible again, I was shocked at what was not in there. And I don't mean by that, the stuff all of us would like. I, I would love to have a blow-by-blow -blow description of raising Jesus from childhood. That's not in there. And so a lot of people have made up versions and written them and even claimed that they got them from old manuscripts. There are a few old gospels out there uh, and they're really, really interesting. But even they were written so long after Jesus that everybody knows they were making it up. It's just made up stuff. So we don't have that, but that's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about going from the Old Testament, where there are 613 laws, more or less the way you count them, 1613 laws about life, worship, sacrifice, food, everything. Then you get in the New Testament, and it is stunning how few laws are there. And the ones we do find are wrapped around, centered on, and covered by love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Um, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. You know, of these three things, faith, hope, and love, that's all that endures, but the greatest of these is love. We could keep going. And we miss those in a rush to find a law that isn't there. What we want is a golden calf. Now see, here's a story that I was told wrong growing up by good people. Uh, the, uh, I, don't, I was not raised and taught Bible classes by evil people. But they had a story that was told to them and then they told it to us without anybody running back upstream saying, who told you about? They told us that uh, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, that he was up there a long time, which he was, and that the people down below got tired of waiting on God, so they decided to make their own God. And they told Aaron to make a, a calf, a golden calf, as an idol, and they would worship to it. I know it sounds really weird to us. We don't tend to worship cows. Uh, but cows were a symbol of life, sustenance, future, because, you know, milk, the hide, the meat, you could use cattle to ensure the, the stability and safety of your family. So it was a symbol for them. They put up this golden calf. Moses comes down, finds her worshiping this, gets mad, uh, grinds up the, the idol, makes them drink it, uh, kills a bunch of them. It's a, we don't always put all of that in the VBS story, but there it is. We don't really notice what the scripture says about this calf. This calf, Aaron wanted it to be a understandable symbol of Jehovah, Yahweh. He wasn't saying, ignore Yahweh, worship a cow. He was saying, we want to be able to understand, see, and categorize our God. So they did it with a golden calf. But for centuries, millennia, people have tried the same thing, but they do it with law. They build a system of laws and they hold it up and say, behold the good news of Jesus Christ. Excuse me, he said, don't do that. In fact, I wanna ask you a question. I think it's wise when God says things, don't you? I mean, come on, that's one of the safest statements I could make. That when God, when God speaks and he wants something to be heard, what he says is very important. We should pay attention. Let me ask you another question then, because it is a necessary corollary. Then it also, would it not be wise when he doesn't say things? not to fill in the gaps. So if God does not speak to a certain issue, we're in, our job is not to hunt through these books, these 66 books, and then using our logic and grabbing and cutting and pasting creatively, fill in for what God never got around to saying. And yet that's exactly what most churches do.
Not all of them by any stretch. And by the way, I don't think these churches are lost. I don't think these churches are my enemy. I'm just saying, I think we've missed something. Let God say what he says. And when he doesn't say it, don't say it. Now there's another way of saying this that has come down through the centuries. A lot of people think it started with the Restoration Movement, the Stone Campbell Movement, uh, the Churches of Christ, Christian Churches and Disciples of Christ, where they, they would say, we speak where the Bible speaks and where the Bible is silent, we are silent. It actually predates them. And there are several different versions of that through history. Regardless, I don't know of any group that does that. We speak where the Bible speaks, but we're silent where the Bible is silent. We rush into the silent places and build our edifices there. For example, I, if I was writing the Bible, I would have written it completely different. I must admit, I, I, there'd be a whole lot left out, but there would be massive books put in. Would it not be terribly helpful to have the book of worship? You go through the book of worship and it says, here are the songs God likes. Here's the tempo he likes. Now, he likes it with these instruments or those instruments or no instruments, but that's all stated. And, and if, you know, in the Churches of Christ, and I grew up with, if you brought in a guitar, that was the same as bringing in a firearm. I mean, it was just panic and just all sorts of anger. But we weren't alone. In the Catholic Church, they, they wrestled and argued about which instruments God likes. And as always, when, when men get together to make that kind of decision, it always turns out that God likes the very instruments they do. And so whenever after Vatican II, whenever people like one of my cousins, Sister Janet Mead, brings a guitar in and sings a different version of the Lord's Prayer, people go nuts. That's not an organ. That's not one of the sacred brass horns. This is not acceptable. We're rushing in and saying what God did not. Wouldn't it be great if we had a book of worship that told us about prayers, how long they should be, whether you know, that we should be praying through the night or for 40 days and 40 nights, or one of those really short prayers, like Jesus, whenever he said, this is how to pray, and he did a short prayer. What, sh what should we do with this? How, uh, when we read scripture, how do, you see what I mean? This book would have to be really thick because it have to cover all of the contingencies. Well, Jesus just said, worship God in spirit and in truth. And see, there's the problem. He is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, worship God wrapped around Jesus. And yet, religions grabbed that word truth and went on a law search and said, if you don't worship him this way, then you're not worshiping in truth. Others grabbed the word spirit and they went running off that way and say, if you worship him, but you don't have these ecstatic utterances, manifestations of the spirit, then you're not worshiping him in truth. They grabbed the very simple thing he gave us and blew it up to create denominational bureaucracies and enforcement divisions. But God didn't give us a book to do that. He didn't give us a book of worship. How about the book of fellowship? I would have loved the book of fellowship because it would have really helped a lot. Can I fellowship? If you don't know what fellowship is, if you're not a, a Bible person, I get that. 
What that means is to accept somebody else as a believer and as a saved individual that you can eat with, that you can work with. Doesn't mean you're going to agree upon everything, but you are, you agree upon the important things. All right. And yes, if you're right now thinking, but what are the important things? You're thinking exactly like the Bible is a rule book people. And I would suggest to you that thinking about what is the important things that that's, that is important, but Jesus defined it when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the father, but by me, Matthew 25, he shows what kind of people he wants in heaven and who get there. So that's important. But the rest of it, you know, can I fellowship you if you have a different idea about the Bible? Can I fellowship you if your pastors have vestments and pointy hats and hold shepherd's crooks? Can I, can I fellowship you if you wash feet as an act of worship? Can I fellowship you if you believe that the scripture is progressive rather than stopping god does nothing the holy spirit goes into retirement uh, as soon as we collate these 66 books you think god's still teaching us things can i fellowship you you see what i mean time after time after time we could have used a book of fellowship god gave us a line he told us, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he gave us a story, the Samaritan, the Samaritan who takes care of a beaten up Jewish man on the side of the road. We lose the power of that story because we don't understand that to a Jew, there was nothing worse than a Samaritan. And to a Samaritan, there was nothing worse than a Jew. Both of them thought they were the only true family of Yahweh, Jehovah the only true family of God and the other was imposter and Jesus told a story about how they cared for each other and that that was good and that's what he meant when he said love your neighbor well that's a, that's a pretty powerful story and it's one simple little line and what did we do we still argue about who you can fellowship and who you cannot is the Bible a real book or a narrative if it's a rule book it is very poorly done and it leaves us options rather uh, openings for real issues think about this the queen's treasurer more often called the ethiopian eunuch had been worshiping at jerusalem with the jews he was a jew uh, he was heading back to ethiopia and again that's a very broad term in the ancient world could mean really anywhere in northern africa and some parts to the far east of Israel, going as far as Syria and even further, Iran. But we don't, we're assuming he's heading down into Africa, but who knows? As he goes, Philip joins himself to the chariot by God's command. He teaches him Jesus. Now, have you ever noticed that? He's reading Isaiah. And Philip goes, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, I really don't. I need someone to help me. Philip, the scripture says, opened up the scriptures and started right there teaching him Jesus. Now, why is that very important? Well, the next question, the next words out to the queen's treasurer's mouth are, well, here's water. What, is there anything that stops me from being baptized? You know, I wanna give myself to Jesus. Philip goes, if you believe, you sure can. There, he is baptized. Ethiopian uh, goes on his way rejoicing. Why? 
I've asked that question to many of the, the Bible is a rule book people. Why did he go on his way rejoicing? And they'll say, well, because he's now a Christian, he's saved. I say, for how long? And they've kind of freeze. And I say, he's going far away from Jerusalem, where the holy books are. He has a book of Isaiah, which is really good. Yeah, glad he has that. But he knows nothing about the worship God likes. And we had tracks, little brochures in our front hallway of the church, the kind of worship God likes. He didn't know anything about how to establish a church. We had a tract on that as well. He didn't know anything about dancing. We had another one about the sin of dancing. He, you get my point? We had a whole rack of little booklets of laws and the Ethiopian eunuch slash Queen's treasurer had no idea of any of this. So if these are important, the Queen's treasurer is lost even though he was baptized and went on his way rejoicing. He was in his ignorance about far too many other things. He would most likely never see a book of what we would later call the New Testament. So, how was he saved? Do you understand why this is so important? How about, and I'll, and by the way, we, we fill with assumptions here. Whenever I challenge people on this, they will start assuming, well, there were, there were other people probably there who had heard other sermons and then there were other people and, and they probably brought books when those were written and, and they have to backfill with dozens and scores of, of, um, of probably maybe assumptions to build up a story so that their insistence on salvation by precision obedience does not collapse. They do that I mean, not that long ago. I uh, was talking to a, a man who was just furious that I would think that a woman, that her voice was welcome in worship for teaching, for leading alongside that of man or as standing up and just teaching. And I brought up to him, well, Philip had uh, a whole handful of daughters that preached with him. Scripture says it. And at first he was going, ah, and then I showed it to him and I'll let you find it. Your Google is working. I like it when people find it on their own. That way it's not spoon fed. But he had these daughters that preached along with him. And immediately, you know what the man said? But they didn't preach to men. I looked at it and I said, where'd you get that? Because what Paul says, he doesn't let a woman teach. I said, I don't know that Philip ever met Paul. We don't ever see any correspondence. They seem to be in completely different parts of the ancient world. Philip never indicates he ever read anything from Paul. Paul never talks about Philip. But you're assuming that whatever Paul said is also what Philip would say. And although the Bible says they preached along with him, you say what they really, the Bible really means, filling in for where God didn't say things, that they only preached to women do you really understand what you're doing here? Is there a law of necessary beliefs? I would love to have had a book of necessary beliefs. You have to believe in a trinity or not. You have to believe in um, this, this about sex, this about the millennium, this about... Well, again, he didn't say it. And if God didn't say it, that means it's wise not to fill in the gaps. 
love one another, accept one another. And I'll just say this as I close. The point is, stories can have laws in them, but law books don't have stories. Stories invite us to participate and to be changed by the journey. Law books invite arguments. And if you don't believe that, you must never have uh, attended a trial. Law books are about conflict and arguments, winners and losers. Rule, um, narratives are about a story we join and enter a group heading the same direction. So which one do you think the Bible is? A rule book or a narrative? Next week.